Good morning. <clears throat> it is great to be with you uh, this morning. And as Cole mentioned, I am one of the members of faculty at Heritage College and Seminary, mostly at the seminary. Uh, I, the only college folks that get me are those who have to know Greek for their, and that's the Bachelor of Theology people, so the college guys are going right into pastoral ministry. So they have me for Greek, that's the only time they'll have me. So I do most of my teaching in the seminary. I teach the right side of the Bible, which is the New Testament, and um, I have a little running argument with the Old Testament guy, but I won't get into that. Anyway, uh, so I've been there five years, really excited about being there. I was a pastor for a number of years before that with the uh, Christian Missionary Alliance, don't hold that against me. And I also did a little stint with the CBOQ, really don't hold that against me. Um, but I feel really blessed to be at Heritage. God had called me to, to be in the academy for a long time. He just took me the long way around to get there. And uh, excited to be there. And you meet some great people. And Cyril, I, I met him five years ago when I first started there. And uh, he's a great guy. You have a great pastor. And uh, he told me to say that, actually. He needs the love this morning. But uh, so... Um, yeah, and you know what, thank you for continuing to lend him to us, because he teaches adjunct there, and the students love Cyril, so thanks for, uh, for extending him uh, to us in that time. So his name was R.C., and although R.C. was the son of a Baptist minister, he'd had a very difficult childhood. Uh, in fact, looking back on his childhood, he said that the best thing he can say about his childhood is that he survived it. You see, when he was 12 years old, he was arrested for stabbing his scoutmaster with his knife. Now, it was self-defense. Uh, his scoutmaster was actually trying to molest him, so it was self-defense. However, the judge didn't see it that way. And the judge sentenced young R.C. to six years in juvenile detention. So virtually his entire teenage years had been taken from him. He spent his teen years behind bars. If you're a teenager this morning, how have you been spending your teen years? Or looking back, those of us who passed those, how did you spend your teenage years? For me, I spent my teen years hanging out with friends, going to pool parties, going to movies, riding a bike, and then once I turned 16, starting to drive cars. None of that farcy. He was behind bars in juvie. When he was 18 and he did his time there, he was released and he joined the army. And it was there in the army that he discovered his gift. He was really good at beating people up. He boxed. And while he was in, uh, in the army, he won several amateur championships. And he was really excited. He was like, you know what? I think I've, I found my calling. I found what I'm really gifted at, what I'm good at, and what I, my mission in this life. I'm going to be a world champion in boxing. And so when he finished his tour in the army... He became a professional prize fighter, and in five short years, he became the number one contender for the middleweight championship of the world. So he is the number one ranked contender. He is on the cusp of achieving his dream, being the world middleweight champion of the world, and then it was taken from him. You see, he was wrongfully accused, wrongfully charged, and wrongfully convicted of a triple homicide. And he was sentenced to life in prison. And so being the son of a Baptist minister, I'm sure that there are many nights he sat on his bed in prison, wondering whether in his heart or out loud, God, what are you doing? Like, God, why are you doing this? Why is this happening? Why is this happening to me? Have you been there? 
Maybe you've come this morning and you've maybe out loud or certainly in your heart, you said, God, why is this going on right now? Why me? Why now? This morning, we want to take a look at a guy, uh, and he was starting to wonder this. His story is found, part of his story is found in Luke. I'm talking about John the Baptist. And I would invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 7. And I'm going to read a paragraph of scripture that we're going to be looking through, verses 18 to 23. So Luke 7, 18 to 23. And the big thrust of this paragraph we want to look at is basically this, that when faced with doubts about God, you have to ground your faith in who God is. If you forget everything else, please remember that. When faced with doubts about God, you have to ground your faith in who God is. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Our Heavenly Father, as we have gathered together this morning to worship you, for you and you alone are worthy of worship and of adoration And so, Lord, we turn the focus of our worship now to the preaching of your word and through our reflecting deeply on your voice as you speak to us through your word. And, Lord, we pray indeed that your voice would be heard through the preaching of your word. Lord, that you would uh, give us eyes to see things we've not seen before and help us to have a fresh encounter with you this morning. For we need you. We need you every hour. We need you right now. We need you today, tomorrow. We need you, Lord. So would you impart grace to us? In Jesus' name, amen. So in faith with doubts about God, we have to ground our faith in who God is. So this little paragraph that we're looking at, it kind of breaks down into two, uh, two larger points. The first point deals with the sources of doubt. What are the sources of doubt? Look with me at verses 18 to 20. John's disciples, John the Baptist, of course, John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Now, what is with John the Baptist? Right? Could this be the same John the Baptist who the, the minute he saw Jesus come to be baptized by him, he said, whoa, whoa, time out, time out. I need to be baptized by you and you're coming to me. Right? Is this the same John the Baptist who, according to John's gospel, when he laid his eyes on Jesus, he pointed to his disciples and said, no, no, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He must increase, I must decrease. Could that be this John? What on earth has gotten into John the Baptist that he does this about face? Well, there are a lot of sources of doubt, and this, this, this paragraph uh, gives us two. And the first 
possible source of doubt is unfair circumstances, right? Unfair circumstances can create doubt. It can lead to doubt in our hearts. And there's really two aspects to unfair circumstances. First is injustice. And we know that John the Baptist, he was a victim of injustice, right? He was called by God to be a prophet. He didn't wake up and say, you know what, Mm, soldier, farmer, prophet, I'm going to be a prophet. No, that's not how it worked, right? God called him to be a prophet. And so among the activities and duties that a prophet has and does is preaching against wickedness and evil. Well, King Herod was shacking up with his brother's wife. That's evil. So John, being the responsible, faithful prophet, did his job. He did his job. He preached against that unlawful union. And what was the result? Prison time. Right? He's thrown in prison for basically just doing his job. Like, talk about unfair circumstances. You're at work, you put in a hard day's work, eight hours, 10 hours, 12 hours, 14 hours, and you've done it exceptionally. And then your boss comes in with the police and say, you're under arrest. You're going to jail. Why? Did I not do my work well? Oh, you did it exceptionally. And because of that, we're putting you in jail. Like, talk about unfair. Like, John is a victim of unfair circumstances. Well, R.C., was also a victim of unfair circumstances because it was later proven and found out that he was a victim of a frame-up. R.C. was this young black man uh, in the 60s, and the white establishment had set him up as a fall guy for this triple homicide. So injustice, that aspect of unfair circumstances, can create doubt. There's another aspect, and it's being isolated from God's activity. Like when you're isolated from what God is doing, that can be a source of doubt. We know that John was isolated from God's activity through Jesus. Uh, In Mark's gospel, Mark says that John the Baptist was imprisoned before Jesus began his ministry. Now, if you look at uh, verse 21 of our text, verse 21 says, at that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. That's a pretty good summary statement of what Jesus was doing for three years. He'd go from town to town, village to village, doing all these works, except John was in prison. So John announced Jesus, and then he never got to see any of that stuff. He only heard about it secondhand, thirdhand. He knew a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy who saw Jesus heal somebody. Like he was isolated from God's activity in Jesus. When we don't see God at work, whether in our own life or in the lives of those around us, our fellowship group, in our church, we're not seeing God at work, then we're ripe for doubt to kind of start to seep into our perspective and to seep uh, into our hearts. Because of a setup, R.C. found himself in prison And his chance to achieve his goal, his mission to become the heavyweight, the the middleweight champion of the world, it had been taken from him. But to add insult to injury, while he was in prison, he had contracted this serious eye illness. And proper protocol would have meant that they send him out of the prison to a hospital to deal with this. this, He needed surgery, to have the surgery, and then when he's physically able, send him back into prison. That's what should have happened, but they didn't do that. The prison felt, we have the facilities to handle this. And so the operation was done. 
in the prison, and they botched the operation. And as a result of the botched eye operation, he suffered permanent blindness in one eye. So you know what that means, right? They could have let him out the very next day, go. He can't box. Like no state would ever sanction a one-eyed boxer. So his dream that he was so close to achieving, it died that night on the operating table. Let me ask you a question this morning. Are you, are you struggling with unfair circumstances? Stuff has been happening in your life, maybe relationally, financially, physically, socially, academically. You're struggling because stuff has happened and this is just unfair. And as a result of these unfair circumstances, doubts now starting to creep into your, your attitude, into your mindset. Doubts about God. God, you don't really care about me. You might care for her. You don't really care about me. You might have a plan for him. You don't have a plan for me. Unfair circumstances are a seedbed for doubt. But there's another uh, seedbed for doubt according to our text. And I would actually argue that this is really what's at the root of John's doubts. And it's our personal view of God. Our personal view of God can create doubt. Look at verse 19. He sent them to the Lord, his two disciples. He sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? And then at the risk of being redundant, verse 20 reads, when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? I don't believe that circumstances, unfair as they are for John, are at the root of his doubt. How do I know that? Because that doesn't fit his profile. That doesn't fit his MO. How do I know that? Because Jesus talks about his cousin John. So John had proclaimed loud and clear, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away sin in the world. There's the Messiah. He must increase. And now he doesn't about face having been put in prison. And so the crowds... See, wow, there's an about face by the so-called mighty prophet. They're starting to have these thoughts about John. Like, that prophet must have been fickle. He's soft. Jesus knows what the crowd's thinking because the crowd has heard John's questions through John's disciples. So Jesus addresses this issue if you drop down to verse 24. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? What, what did you crowds go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you guys go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. John is not soft. John is not fickle. It's not these tough circumstances that have caused John to rethink thoughts about Jesus. It's his view of 
God, or in particular, his view of Messiah, that is at the root of his doubt. You see, our view of God, or the academic word, I guess, would be theology or something like that. Our theology, our view of God, shapes our expectations of God. Right? So, for example, if you believe that God heals, then you're going to be praying, as we did, that God would heal, and invariably, you're going to see God heal in some way, shape, or form people. If, on the other hand, you say, no, God does not heal. He doesn't do that anymore. Okay, so that means you're never, ever going to pray for healing because, well, he doesn't do that anymore. And you probably will never see any type of healing take place in and around you. Our view of God shapes our expectations of God. And unmet expectations create doubt. If you're expecting God to do something... Expecting, 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 and it's not happening, not happening, not happening. Then doubts can start to seep into your perspective and into your heart and into your mind. John's view of Messiah, in his view of Messiah, he expected the Messiah to bring judgment. Because as he read the Jewish scriptures, which we call the Old Testament, as he read the scriptures and saw messianic passages, he saw passages that talk about Messiah bringing judgment. And so he believed when Messiah comes, Messiah is going to bring judgment. How do we know that? If you keep your finger in Luke and turn to Matthew chapter 3. And in Matthew 3, John the Baptist is preaching. And in verse 7, he says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? And then drop down to verse 10. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. When Messiah comes, he's bringing the fire. He's bringing judgment. That's what John believed. That's what his view of Messiah led him to believe. And so while he's in prison, he knows his theology, his view of Messiah says, you know what, I'm in prison right now for doing my job. Not really fair, but whatever. But Messiah is here. I've baptized Messiah. And I know one of the jobs of Messiah is to execute judgment. So it's just a matter of time before Messiah, Jesus, springs me from this prison cell and he judges those people who've put me in this cell and those like them. Well, the hours in that prison cell rolled up into days and the days in that cell rolled up into weeks and the weeks rolled up into months. Huh. Scripture clearly teaches that when Messiah comes, he's going to execute judgment. I've seen Messiah. He's Jesus. I've seen him. I've baptized him. Messiah is here. But I'm still here. There's no judgment that's supposed to come with Messiah. Huh. 
Is Jesus really the one who's to come? Or should we expect someone else? With dreams of a boxing championship now dead, RC focused on simple survival. And after serving nine years, nine years, where were you nine years ago? After serving nine years of, of a sentence that he did not deserve, a crime that he did not commit, he launched an appeal hoping that the state would overturn that conviction. And the appeal went out and it returned denied. Let me ask you a question this morning. Are you trusting God for something? Something that you believe is his will for you or his will for someone close to you? You believe it, you expect it, and it's not happening. And you've been praying for a long time, and it just has not happened. And now you're starting to doubt. I don't know, God. Maybe you haven't expressed your doubt to a pastor or to, to someone else in the church, but it's there in your heart. Like, is this Christianity thing? Is it even really real? The wonderful thing about our text is that Jesus doesn't just leave us in our doubts. He gives us the answer. For our doubts, and that's the second part of this paragraph. Jesus gives us an answer for doubt, and there's three parts to his answer. So look with me at verse 22. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear. The dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. So the first part of Jesus' answer for our doubt is this. When we're doubting, we have to reevaluate our view of God. Right? We have to reevaluate our view of God. That's what Jesus, in effect, tells John to do. Because in verse 22, he affirms his messianic identity to John. I am who you think I am, John. But he does something more than that. You can't see it in your English translations, but it's much clearer in the Greek text that in his response, he alludes to three passages in the book of Isaiah, a book that John would have known intimately because Isaiah verse 3 speaks of John the Baptist himself. So in his answer in verse 22, he alludes to three texts in Isaiah, Isaiah 26, 35, and 61, which John would have caught. John would have recognized Jesus is sending him back to Scripture, right? You're close, John, but you need to go back to Scripture to reevaluate your view of Messiah. See, when we're doubting, we have to reevaluate our view of God and our reevaluation of God. It can't be based on Gallup polls. It can't be based on pop culture. It can't be based even on our feelings or Oprah. It's got to be based on truth. And God's Word, the Scripture, is truth. So if God's not doing what you want, if God's not doing what you expect, the fault is not with God. The fault is with your view of God. So in doubting, we have to reevaluate our view of God. Secondly, in our reevaluation of our view of God, we have to allow for the mystery of God's sovereignty. And again, that's what Jesus, in effect, tells John that he has to allow for the mystery of God's sovereignty. You see in each of those texts, Isaiah 26, 35, 61, that Jesus alludes to, if you go back to those texts, each of those texts in Isaiah actually do speak about judgment that the Messiah is supposed to bring. 
but it's Jesus is God who determines the timetable for judgment and not John's view of Messiah. And I think this is shown a little bit more clearly if you keep your finger in Luke 7 and flip back to uh, Luke chapter 4. And so Jesus, he's been tempted in the wilderness, and then he comes into Galilee, and his inaugural sermon, he goes into the synagogue, and he, uh, the scroll, verse 17 of chapter 4, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah is handed to Jesus, and Jesus unrolls the scroll, so it's a big scroll, and he unrolls it to a particular text, Isaiah 61, and verse 18, he reads it. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened onto him. And Jesus began by saying to them, Today... This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, Jesus does something very interesting here because if you go back to Isaiah 61, verse 1, and read it, the last line says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. John expected both. He expected Messiah to come and do both. He only got one. He didn't get the other. That tripped him up. Right? The point is, is that God is the one. He is sovereign, and he alone sets the timing of the events of our lives and the lives of those around us and not our view of God. That's something God has taught me, um, I'd say, in the last 12 to 15 years uh, quite a bit. Like, our lives, we kind of have an internal clock to our life, you know, an in- a-, a watch, and so we, ex- we have our expectations of when things are supposed to happen, right? I, you know, when I go off to university or college and when I get married and when I start having kids and when I launch into my career, we have our own timing. And God will use circumstances and things like that to tap us on the shoulder and say, you know what, your watch is fast again. You got to turn it back. It's fast. Because our watches never run slow compared to God's perfect time. They always run fast. And God says, no, it's fast. you got to turn it back. See, God sets the timetables. He is sovereign. He sets the timetables, and we don't. So we have to allow for the mystery of God's sovereignty. And the third thing about Jesus' answer here is that we must recognize that God's works stem from his nature. His works proceed, they flow out of his nature. Look at the last verse of our text, verse 23. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Uh, the New American Standard translates that more literally, and, and blessed is he who keeps from stumbling in me. Right? Jesus links within, he links who he is with what he does. Who God is determines what God does. God always and only acts according to his nature. So here's the thing then. If we can understand God truly, but we can never understand God fully, right? We can understand God truly through scriptures and the sacraments and through the Holy Spirit, but we can never understand God fully. There will never come a time 
when we're in eternity with God, a gazillion years into the future, we'll never turn to God and say, wow, God, I now know all there is to know about you. I know you as well as you know you. No. God is infinite. We are finite. So by definition, we'll never, ever know God fully. We'll always be learning about God. Well, guess what? What that means then is if we don't know God fully, we can't know him fully, then that means then that there's going to be some things that God does, that God allows, that we're not going to understand either. And so that's why we have to ground our faith in who God is. Because we're not always going to understand, we're not always going to know why. Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to her? Why? We're not always going to understand and know the answer why. But we can always know who. Who. And the answer to the question who has never, ever been more brilliantly answered than the cross. Who. The cross tells us who. Brilliantly, brightly, clearly, that God, the Father, sent his Son, God of God, light from light, true God of true God, sent his Son into this world to die your death on the cross, to die my death on the cross. Well, not always going to know why, but we can always know who. After 19 years in prison, R.C. had lost hope. Right? 19 years in prison. He lost hope. But unbeknownst to R.C., a couple of lawyers kind of happened onto his case, and they started digging into his case, and they whoa, there's some stuff here. So they started working on his case, and then they, they launched another appeal. And this time the appeal came back, and it was successful. The judge ruled that the extensive record clearly demonstrates that the conviction was predicated upon appeal to racism rather than reason, and concealment rather than disclosure. So after 19 years of wrongful imprisonment, R.C., Reuben Hurricane Carter, was set free. He was set free. He was a free man. But his, his life's dream, his life's mission had changed drastically because of his time in prison. Remember what it was. It was to be the, the middleweight champion of the world, which he'd come so close to, but that had changed. After he was set free, he moved to Canada, and he founded the Association for the Defense of the Wrongfully Convicted, and he spent the rest of his life, and he died recently, he spent the, the rest of the 30 years traveling about helping other people who had been wrongfully convicted of crimes. That became his new destiny. That became his new mission, his new calling. That became the way that he made a difference. Not the way that he first thought, and certainly not in the timing that he first thought. But God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we, we are blown away at your, your greatness, Lord. We worship a God who is so amazingly great that you are above and beyond our imagination. Even our imagination, we can't even imagine anything greater than you. 
And God, you are so perfect. And you've demonstrated your perfection through the cross that we now get to um, celebrate around the Lord's Supper. Father, I pray for people here this morning who um, are really kind of back is up against the wall um, in terms of things that have been going on in their life. Maybe a, an abusive relationship, uh, maybe infertility, um, uh, maybe job loss, financial struggles, a relationship that is, has been broken, severed, or is teetering on the brink of being severed. And they are wondering, God, like, where are you? What are you doing? Why is this happening? Father, I pray that you would, even at this moment, infuse tremendous grace into their hearts to see and hear and know in a fresh way of your power and your character. To strengthen their hearts and minds from the attacks and lies of the enemy, of the evil one, who would be floating lies into their hearts and minds. That you would strengthen them against that. And that as we draw near to you through the Lord's Supper, that you would impart uh, fresh grace to each one of us, but particularly those who are uh, um, really in difficult waters right now. That they and us would, in a fresh way, know of your goodness, your love, your mercy, your grace. If there was ever any doubt, it's completely completely obliterated because of the cross, this historical event of the cross and the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' amazing name. Amen.